from KQED. This is Queued Up, Storytelling with Heart. I'm John Sepulveda. This is The Trials of Marvin Much, Chapter 4. It's a story about the murder of a young girl in 1974, and it's the story of the man punished for it, a man who says he's not guilty. Marvin was locked up just as the criminal justice system was transforming into a system of mass incarceration. But Marvin was about to undergo a transformation of his own. Here's KQED reporter Alex Emsley. Marvin says going to prison is like walking into a pitch black cave. When you leave the world and you enter a prison system, it's dark and it takes months for you to get acclimated to the darkness of that environment. It's 1975. Marvin is 19 years old. He's been found guilty for the murder of Cassie Riley. And he's headed to San Quentin State Prison, the oldest of a dozen California prisons operating at the time. Once I got to San Quentin, that's when things became terrifyingly real. Uh, I was probably there five days, and uh, I saw a guy sitting on another guy on the upper yard stabbing him with a knife and was hitting the ground underneath him. The guy finally said, you've already killed me. I couldn't, I was frozen. So I spent most of my time in legal stacks, reading law books and trying to figure out what my course of action should be. Before Marvin even got to prison, he was trying to get out. First he appealed arguing the circumstantial evidence in his trial shouldn't have been enough to convict him. Everything was hope. He waited for a year and a half. And then a hope that was dashed. The appeal was denied. And then another hope. Marvin hung his hopes on an early parole. At the time, his seven-to-life sentence meant an average of ten and a half years in prison. And then a hope that was dashed. Parole was a thin sliver of light in the darkness. But as Marvin got closer and closer to it, the light was getting dimmer and dimmer. This is the trials of Marvin Much. You go to prison and you realize the atmosphere is strange. This is exactly what the system does. We can't figure this out. Well, let's make something up. You are a stranger in a strange land. I was railing against authority for the first 15 years I was in prison. And at the end, it wasn't the system that struck the most harmful blow. It was myself. And when would they let you out? Well, it sort of had to do with how they thought about you. Everything was to life. I did it to myself. Chapter 4, To Life. When I walked in, people were like, is this kid doing in here? So I had to be a tough guy right away. Ended up going to the hole. Got out. Had to be a tough guy again. Went to the hole. I didn't appreciate having anybody tell me what to do, tell me when I can eat. All those things were, were things I thought I could do something about. But he couldn't. Marvin had run headfirst into a world with its own rules and logic, the criminal justice system. In some ways, Marvin's story is the story of the criminal justice system over the past 40 years. And to tell that, we need to address some of the big questions of incarceration, class, and race. New analysis of the U.S. prison population finds more black men are incarcerated now than were enslaved in 1850. The figures are stunning. They are sobering, eye-opening numbers. According to the most recent data available from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, only about a quarter of male prisoners are white. 
Latino and black men account for almost 70% of inmates. To attorney Susan Rutberg, that means men of color are more likely to be wrongfully convicted. Primarily, the victims of this kind of injustice are black or brown men. A new study is shedding light on why black people are more likely than white people to be wrongfully convicted of a crime. Marvin is a white man, so he's an anomaly in that regard, but he's certainly not the only one. He spent nearly 25 years behind bars for a crime he did not commit. I stood back as an innocent man watching it fold out before me, and it wasn't right. I waited for this day to come, 24 and a half years, for this nightmare to be over. I hope that my case be the catalyst to bring all this to the light and to bring many innocent men and women home to their families. People look at this and they'll say, well, here's a white guy, you know. I know that there is a racial bias. I know that racism exists and I know that it's a big part of why things happen to people of color. But I also know that when you're talking about the criminal justice system, you're talking more about socioeconomic issues. You're talking about marginalized communities. And it doesn't matter if you're a white person or you're a black person or you're an Asian person and you're poor and you're disadvantaged. You're a prime target for a system that operates the way this one does. That system was about to make it harder for men like Marvin to ever get out. Back when I went to prison on a 7 of life, guys were doing 10 years, 8 months average. Prison terms like this are called indeterminate sentences. And back then, they were common. So when I started in 1970, if you were charged with robbery, what was the punishment? Five to life. Everything was to life. That's Marvin's defense attorney, James McWilliams. And when would they let you out? Well, it sort of had to do with how they thought about you. But the thinking was about to change. Between the mid-70s and the early 80s, when Marvin was first eligible for parole, an evolution in California and the nation's criminal justice system was just beginning. My fellow Americans, today I want to talk with you about a subject that's been very much on my mind. It's a subject I know you've been thinking about too. Crime in our society. Politicians perceive a public panic, a fear of street crime. We must make America safe again. Tough on crime, a phrase that's almost synonymous with then-President Ronald Reagan. It would transform the meaning of to life. I also want to stop abuse of the parole system by making jail sentences more certain. Recently passed laws and a statewide initiative have added to most prison terms considerably. Already our efforts to crack down on career criminals Organized crime, drug pushers, and to enforce tougher sentences and paroles are having effect. The system is overloaded. California prisons are bulging at the seams. The state prison system was on the brink of a huge expansion. Even those in the darkness of prison cells could tell something was up. There was a point in 84 that uh, everybody started realizing that there was some trouble. California tripled its number of prisons between 1980 and 2000, and the number of inmates grew by 500% to more than 160,000. Marvin watched as parole, his last chance for getting out, slowly fell away. By the mid-1980s, parole for lifers like him was extremely rare. There were governors where the grant rate was in the single, the number of people released was in the single digits. Heidi Rummel is a law professor at the University of Southern California and an attorney who specializes in parole. You can do everything right for your entire time in prison and really have no hope, no real hope of going home. 
Marvin's disciplinary record didn't help his chances. When he first got to prison, he talked back to guards and got in fights with other inmates. He had had much trouble in prison his, his first 20 years. He had a series of write-ups. Michael Snedeker is a longtime prisoner's attorney who represented Marvin later. Then they stopped as of 1995. After that time, Marvin became a really solid citizen and stopped getting write-ups altogether. That's because as the criminal justice system was transforming, Marvin was going through a transformation of his own. When he first got locked up, Marvin lashed out, fighting the system, fighting other inmates, going to the hole. But something had shifted in Marvin, and now he's focused, challenging everything he perceives as an injustice, big or small. All my life I've had this desire to fix things that were wrong. Maybe it went back to being in foster care, or what he says is his wrongful conviction. Either way, in prison, something that was in him all along came to the surface. There's nothing noble about it. I, I tell people all the time it's part of my disease. There had been attempts for inmates to organize in prison before, but Marvin was part of the first group to find permanent success. That group became known as the Men's Advisory Council, or the MAC. It helped inmates file complaints against heavy-handed correctional officers and negotiated policy with prison officials. This was a fresh thing for them. They never had a situation where they had to sit down with a group of inmates and negotiate program and rights. They'd never been in a situation where an individual wearing blue can come up and say, why did you do that? And I need to see your sergeant. The MAC spread from San Quentin and now has councils throughout the California prison system. As the MAC chairman, Marvin fought to hold authorities and inmates accountable. He helped mediate grievances. Sometimes he even won. He helped quell racial problems. But as years turned to decades, there were losses, some of them devastating. I had a friend, uh, Robert Dubner, for maybe 15 years. We ate breakfast and then ate dinner uh, at the same table. One morning, Marvin and Robert had breakfast every other day. But when Marvin returned to the cell block he shared with Dubner and other men, it was roped off with crime scene tape and correctional officers were everywhere. I asked what happened and he told me that uh, Robert killed himself. And I said, that's not true. I just ate breakfast with him this morning. But it was true. Dubner left a suicide note. His death hit Marvin hard. I could not see that he was within hours of making such a permanent and final decision. How had he missed the warning signs? How had he not known that his friend was about to take his own life? Those questions stayed with Marvin. So he started writing letters to organizations that deal with mental health and crisis counseling. One group, Bay Area Women Against Rape, responded. They came to San Quentin, to teach Marvin and a dozen other inmates counseling techniques. We became state certified, not only in crisis intervention counseling, male sexual assault, uh, survivor counseling, suicide prevention, and we called ourselves Brothers Keepers. Inmate suicide is a big problem in California. A recent report found the state had one of the highest inmate suicide rates in the country. Between 1999 and 2013, there was an average of 31 suicides per year. That's a suicide every 12 days, somewhere in the state prison system. Lifers like Marvin, with almost no hope of release, were especially vulnerable to the despair that could lead to suicide. 
long-term incarcerated people started looking at parole like Christians look at heaven. They just have to have faith it's there. Marvin held on to the small chance that he'd someday get paroled. But parole turned out to be one of the paradoxes of prison. And Marvin was faced with a difficult choice. Here's attorney Susan Rutberg. So Marvin, um, at first, when he first got to prison, he just kept saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And every time he went up for parole, he would say, I didn't do it. And he was told by the parole commissioners and also by guards, you know, who advised him, look, if you don't admit your crime, you'll never get out of here. If you find yourself in a position where they're saying, listen, you have to tell us this. You have to. Until you tell me that you committed this crime, you're never getting out of prison. And then you go back to your cell. And you sit there for several years and you go back before them and they tell you the same thing. After a while, you go, okay, what? What do you want to hear? Okay, I've got to make some type of admission to the board and how do I do this? How do I make this admission without uh, people thinking I'm some kind of a monster? After about a decade in prison, Marvin says he went back to his cell and made up a story about his involvement in 13-year-old Cassie Riley's murder. When I came back the next year, I told them, they said, are you responsible? I said, yeah, I'm responsible. He says, oh, <clears throat> tell me about it. Marvin told the parole commissioner that he was a member of a KKK youth group, upset about Cassie dating a black kid from school. Marvin said he lured her to the creek where a group of about a dozen other boys were waiting. They put her into a makeshift dunking apparatus, basically a water torture device, trying to get her to give up the boy's address. He said Cassie drowned accidentally, and the boys went to an older member of the group for advice, who told them to arrange her body to make it look like a sexual assault or ritualistic murder. There's a lot to unpack about that story. Marvin says it was an obvious lie, a way to satisfy parole commissioner's requirement that he accept responsibility for the crime without actually accepting responsibility for the crime. How can I say I'm responsible, but I didn't do it? The story didn't match with Cassie's injuries, though, which showed bruising around the back of her neck that a person had held her underwater. And it didn't account for the footprints at the scene, which indicated just one other person, not a large group of people, was there and struggled with Cassie when she died. It was pretty far-fetched. The prosecution side, the DA's office, allegedly investigated that story that he told and found it to be a lie. The board commissioner actually said, why are you lying to us? I said, because you said, if I didn't say I was responsible, I was never getting out of prison. He says, well, you just, we can't believe anything you say. You're a liar now, I mean, because you just lied. So then he, they said, oh, you're never getting out of here because you lied at your parole hearing. So it was that catch-22. You don't know until you've been in a situation where you're sitting across the, the table from some men who are going to decide the rest of your life. And you've already been in prison, you know, a decade or more. And you finally just say, you know what? What does it matter? What does it matter if I say I'm responsible? I'm already convicted. This could have been the end of Marvin's story, relegated to spend the rest of his life in prison. And truthfully, there wasn't much more Marvin could do to change that. He was hopeless. Hopelessness is, is uh, 
it gets into your bones. And there's a point when you just say, okay, that's it. I, I, I'm tired. What, what do you want me to do? So now that hopelessness has turned into uh, the fact that you, you actually compromised yourself. You did exactly what they wanted, that you had been resisting, and all of a sudden it means nothing. And so you're left with this really empty void uh, where your own minimal self-respect used to be. But in 2000, 25 years after Marvin went to prison, something was about to happen that would shine new light on Cassie Riley's murder, light that would point to other suspects. That's next time on The Trials of Marvin Much. And we decided to investigate the case. But there was no DNA. There was, this was not a DNA case. We would put our energy into trying to get him out through the parole process. California's life-term parole process is a very political process. I really believed I was leaving. Very few people known as lifers had ever been granted parole. You're a fool at the end of it, you know, to even believe. The Trials of Marvin Much was reported by Alex Emsley and Adam Grossberg. It's also a documentary film. You can go see it at thetrialsofmarvinmuch.org. If you're curious about this story and our investigation and you want to learn more, you can find documents related to the case, photos, court transcripts, and other extras on the website. The Trials of Marvin Much was edited by Sanja Dirks. Senior editors are David Weir and Julia McAvoy. Executive producers of Cued Up are Ethan Lindsay and Holly Kernan. I'm John Sepulveda, and you can subscribe to Cued Up wherever you get your podcasts. If you like Cued Up and are looking for other podcasts with deeply reported stories, Check out one of our favorites, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal takes listeners to places they normally couldn't go, from inside the white supremacist movement to behind the bars of a private prison. Reveal is the first-of-its-kind investigative program, and you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Learn more at Reveal.org.